Part Third, Chapter Nine, Part Two of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part Third, The Lighthouse, Chapter Nine, Part Two. Nostromo's prolonged silence made the doctor uneasy. He pointed out quite unnecessarily that, though for the present he was safe, he could not live concealed forever. The choice was between accepting the mission to Barrios with all its dangers and difficulties, and leaving Sulaco by stealth, ingloriously in poverty. "'None of your friends could reward you and protect you just now, Capataz. Not even Don Carlos himself. I would have none of your protection and none of your rewards.' I only wish I could trust your courage and your sense. When I return in triumph, as you say, with Barrios, I may find you all destroyed. You have the knife at your throat now. It was the doctor's turn to remain silent in the contemplation of horrible contingencies. Well, we would trust your courage and your sense. And you, too, have a knife at your throat. Ah, and whom am I to thank for that? What are your politics and your minds to me, your silver and your constitutions, your Don Carlos this and Don Jose that? I don't know, burst out the exasperated doctor. There are innocent people in danger whose little finger is worth more than you or I and all the Rivieras together. I don't know. You should have asked yourself before you allowed Decoud to lead you into all this. It was your place to think like a man, but if you did not think then, try to act like a man now. Did you imagine Decoud cared very much for what would happen to you? No more than you care what will happen to me, muttered the other. No, I care for what will happen to you as little as I care for what will happen to myself. And all this because you are such a devoted Rivierist, Nostromo said in an incredulous tone. All this because I am such a devoted Rivierist, repeated Dr. Monaghan grimly. Again Nostromo, gazing abstractedly at the body of the late Senor Hirsch, remained silent, thinking that the doctor was a dangerous person in more than one sense. It was impossible to trust him. "'Do you speak in the name of Don Carlos?' he asked at last. "'Yes, I do,' the doctor said loudly, without hesitation. "'He must come forward now. He must,' he added in a mutter which Nostromo did not catch. "'What did you say, Senor?' the doctor started. I say that you must be true to yourself, Capitas. It would be worse than folly to fail now. True to myself, repeated Nostromo. How do you know that I would not be true to myself if I told you to go to the devil with your propositions? I do not know. Maybe you would, the doctor said with a roughness of tone intended to hide the sinking of his heart and the faltering of his voice. All I know is that you had better get away from here. Some of Sotillo's men may turn up here looking for me. He slipped off the table, listening intently. The capataz, too, stood up. "'Suppose I went to Kaita. What would you do, meantime?' he asked. "'I would go to Sotillo directly you had left, in the way I am thinking of. A very good way, if only that engineer-in-chief consents. Remind him, senor, that I looked after the old rich Englishman who pays for the railway, and that I saved the lives of some of his people that time when a gang of thieves came from the south to wreck one of his patrons.' It was I who discovered it, all at the risk of my life, by pretending to enter into their plans. Just as you are doing with Sotillo. Yes, yes, of course, but I can offer him better arguments, the doctor said hastily. Leave it to me. Ah, yes, true, I, I am nothing. Not at all. You are everything. 
They moved a few paces towards the door. Behind them, the late Senor Hirsch preserved the immobility of a disregarded man. That will be all right. I know what to say to the engineer, pursued the doctor in a low tone. My difficulty will be with Sotillo. And Dr. Monaghan stopped short in the doorway, as if intimidated by the difficulty. He had made the sacrifice of his life. He considered this a fitting opportunity. But he did not want to throw his life away too soon. In his quality of betrayer of Don Carlo's confidence, he would have ultimately to indicate the hiding place of the treasure. That would be the end of his deception, and the end of himself as well, at the hands of the infuriated colonel. He wanted to delay him to the very last moment, and he had been racking his brains to invent some place of concealment at once plausible and difficult of access. He imparted his trouble to Nostromo and concluded, Do you know what, Capataz? I think that when the time comes, and some information must be given, I shall indicate the great Isabel. That is the best place I can think of. What is the matter? A low exclamation had escaped Nostromo. The doctor waited, surprised, and, after a moment of profound silence, heard a thick voice stammer out, Utter folly, and stop with a gasp. Why folly? Uh, you do not see it, began Nostromo scathingly, gathering scorn as he went on. Three men in a half-hour would see that no ground had been disturbed anywhere on that island. Do you think that such a treasure can be buried without leaving traces of the work? Eh, Senor Doctor? Why, you would not gain half a day before having your throat cut by Sotillo. Isabel, what stupidity! What miserable invention! Ah, you are all alike, you fine men of intelligence. All you are fit for is to betray men of the people into undertaking deadly risks for objects that you are not even sure about. If it comes off, you get the benefit. If not, then it does not matter. He is only a dog. Ah, madre de Dios, I would— He shook his fists above his head. The doctor was overwhelmed at first by this fierce, hissing vehemence. Well, it seems to me on your own showing that the men of the people are no mean fools, too, he said sullenly. No, but come, you are so clever. Have you a better place? Nostromo had calmed down as quickly as he had flared up. I am clever enough for that, he said quietly, almost with indifference. You want to tell him of a hiding-place big enough to take days in ransacking, a place where treasure of silver ingots can be buried without leaving a sign on the surface. And close at hand, the doctor put in. Just so, senor. Tell him it is sunk. This has the merit of being the truth, the doctor said contemptuously. He will not believe it. You tell him that it is sunk, where he may hope to lay his hands on it, and he will believe you quick enough. Tell him it has been sunk in the harbour in order to be recovered afterwards by divers. Tell him you found out that I had orders from Don Carlos Gould to lower the cases quietly overboard somewhere in a line between the end of the jetty and the entrance. The depth is not too great there. He has no divers, but he has a ship, boats, ropes, chains, sailors, of a sort. Let him fish for the silver. Let him set his fools to drag backwards and forwards and crossways while he sits and watches, till his eyes drop out of his head. Really, this is an admirable idea, muttered the doctor. See. Si. You tell him that, and see whether he would not believe you. He will spend days in rage and torment, and still he will believe. He will have no thought for anything else. He will not give up till he is driven off. Why, he may even forget to kill you. He will neither eat nor sleep. He— The very thing! The very thing! The doctor repeated in an excited whisper. Capataz, I begin to believe that you are a great genius in your own way. Nostromo had paused, then began again in a changed tone. Somber, speaking to himself as though he had forgotten the doctor's existence. There is something in a treasure that fastens upon a man's mind. He will pray and blaspheme, and still persevere, and will curse the day he ever heard of it, and will let his last hour come upon him unawares. 
still believing that he missed it only by a foot. He will see it every time he closes his eyes. He will never forget it till he is dead. And even then, doctor, did you ever hear of the miserable gringos on Azuera that cannot die? <laughs> Sailors like myself, there is no getting away from a treasure that once fastens upon your mind. You are a devil of a man, Capataz. It is the most plausible thing. Nostromo pressed his arm. It will be worse for him than thirst at sea or hunger in a town full of people. Do you know what that is? He shall suffer greater torments than he inflicted upon that terrified wretch who had no invention. None. Not like me. I could have told Sotillo a deadly tale for very little pain. He laughed wildly and turned in the doorway towards the body of the late Senor Hirsch, an opaque, long blotch in the semi-transparent obscurity of the room between the two tall parallelograms of the windows full of stars. You man of fear, he cried. You shall be avenged by me, Nostromo. Out of my way, doctor. Stand aside, or by the suffering soul of a woman dead without confession, I will strangle you with my two hands. He bounded downwards into the black smoky hall. With a grunt of astonishment, Dr. Monaghan threw himself recklessly into the pursuit. At the bottom of the charred stairs he had a fall, pitching forward on his face with a force that would have stunned a spirit less intent upon a task of love and devotion. He was up in a moment, jarred, shaken, with a queer impression of the terrestrial globe having been flung at his head in the dark, but it wanted more than that to stop Dr. Monaghan's body, possessed by the exaltation of self-sacrifice, a reasonable exaltation, determined not to lose whatever advantage chance put into his way. He ran with headlong, tottering swiftness, his arms going like a windmill in his effort to keep his balance on his crippled feet. He lost his hat. The tails of his open gabardine flew behind him. He had no mind to lose sight of the indispensable man, but it was a long time and a long way from the custom-house before he managed to seize his arm from behind, roughly out of breath. "'Stop! Are you mad?' Already Nostromo was walking slowly, his head dropping, as if checked in his pace by the weariness of irresolution. "'What is that to you?' Ah, I forgot you want me for something, always, siempre nostromo. What do you mean by talking of strangling me? panted the doctor. What do I mean? I mean that the king of the devils himself has sent you out of this town of cowards and talkers to meet me to-night of all the nights of my life. Under the starry sky the albergo de Taliuna emerged black and low, breaking the dark level of the plain. Nostromo stopped altogether. The priests say he is a tempter, do they not? he added through his clenched teeth. "'My good man, you drivel. The devil has nothing to do with this. Neither has the town, which you may call by what name you please. But Don Carlos Gould is neither a coward nor an empty talker. You will admit that.' He waited. "'Well?' "'Could I see Don Carlos?' "'Great heavens, no. Why, what for?' exclaimed the doctor in agitation. "'I tell you it is madness. I will not let you go into the town for anything. I must.' "'You must not!' hissed the doctor, fiercely, almost beside himself, with the fear of the man doing away with his usefulness, for an imbecile whim of some sort. "'I tell you, you shall not. I would rather—' He stopped, at a loss for words, feeling fagged out, powerless, holding on to Nostromo's sleeve absolutely for support after his run. "'I am betrayed,' muttered the capataz to himself, and the doctor, who overheard the last word, made an effort to speak calmly. "'That is exactly what would happen to you. You would be betrayed.' He thought, with a sickening dread, that the man was so well known that he could not escape recognition. The house of the Señor Administrador was beset by spies, no doubt, and even the very servants of the casa were not to be trusted. Reflect, Capataz, he said impressively. What are you laughing at? I am laughing to think that if somebody that did not approve of my presence in town, for instance, 
You understand, Senor Doctor, if somebody were to give me up to Pedrito, it would not be beyond my power to make friends even with him. It is true. What do you think of that? You are a man of infinite resource, Capitas, said Dr. Monaghan dismally. I recognize that. But the town is full of talk about you, and those few cargadores that are not in hiding with the railway people have been shouting Viva Montero on the plaza all day. My poor cargadores, muttered Nostromo, betrayed. Betrayed. I understand that on the wharf you were pretty free in laying about you with a stick amongst your poor cargadores, the doctor said in a grim tone, which showed that he was recovering from his exertions. Make no mistake, Pedrito is furious at Senor Riviera's rescue, and at having lost the pleasure of shooting Decoud. Already there are rumors in the town of the treasure having been spirited away. To have missed that does not please Pedrito either. But let me tell you that if you had all that silver in your hand for ransom, it would not save you. Turning swiftly and catching the doctor by the shoulders, Nostromo thrust his face close to his. Maladetta, you follow me, speaking of the treasure. You have sworn my ruin. You were the last man who looked upon me before I went out with it. And Sidoni, the engine driver, says you have an evil eye. He ought to know. I saved his broken leg for him last year, the doctor said stoically. He felt on his shoulders the weight of these hands famed among the populace for snapping thick ropes and bending horseshoes. And to you I offer the best means of saving yourself. Let me go, and of retrieving your great reputation. You boasted of making the Capataz de Cargadores famous from one end of America to the other about this wretched silver. But I bring you a better opportunity. Let me go, hombre. Nostromo released him abruptly, and the doctor feared that the indispensable man would run off again, but he did not. He walked on slowly. The doctor hobbled by his side, till within a stone's throw from the Casa Viola, Nostromo stopped again. Silent and in inhospitable darkness, the Casa Viola seemed to have changed its nature. His home appeared to repel him with an air of hopeless and inimical mystery. The doctor said, You'll be safe there. Go in, Capitas. How can I go in? Nostromo seemed to ask himself in a low, inward tone. She cannot unsay what she said, and I cannot undo what I have done. I tell you it is all right. Viola is all alone in there. I looked in as I came out of the town. You will be perfectly safe in that house till you leave it to make your name famous on the campo. I am going now to arrange for your departure with the engineer-in-chief, and I shall bring you news here long before daybreak. Dr. Monaghan, disregarding, perhaps fearing to penetrate the meaning of Nostromo's silence, clapped him lightly on the shoulder, and starting off with his smart, lame walk, vanished utterly at the third or fourth hop in the direction of the railway track. Arrested between the two wooden posts for people to fasten their horses to, Nostromo did not move, as if he too had been planted solidly in the ground. At the end of half an hour he lifted his head to the deep baying of the dogs at the railway yards, which had burst out suddenly, tumultuous and deadened as if coming from under the plain. That lame doctor with the evil eye had got there pretty fast. Step by step Nostromo approached the albergo de Talio Una, which he had never known so lightless, so silent before. The door, all black in the pale wall, stood open as he left it twenty-four hours before, when he had nothing to hide from the world. He remained before it, irresolute, like a fugitive, like a man betrayed. Poverty, misery, starvation. Where had he heard these words? The anger of a dying woman had prophesied that fate for his folly. It looked as if it would come true very quickly, and the leperos would laugh, she had said. Yes, they would laugh if they knew that the capataz de cargadores was at the mercy of the mad doctor whom they could remember only a few years ago buying cooked food from a stall on the plaza for a copper coin, like one of themselves. 
At that moment the notion of seeking Captain Mitchell passed through his mind. He glanced in the direction of the jetty and saw a small gleam of light in the OSN Company's building. The thought of the lighted windows was not attractive. Two lighted windows had decoyed him into the empty custom house, only to fall into the clutches of that doctor. No, he would not go near lighted windows again on that night. Captain Mitchell was there, and what could he be told? That doctor would worm it all out of him as if he were a child. On the threshold he called out, Giorgio, in an undertone. Nobody answered. He stepped in. Hola, viejo, are you there? In the impenetrable darkness his head swam with the illusion that the obscurity of the kitchen was as vast as the placid gulf, and that the floor dipped forward like a sinking lighter. Hola, viejo, he repeated falteringly, swaying where he stood. His hand, extended to steady himself, fell upon the table. Moving a step forward, he shifted it and felt a box of matches under his fingers. He fancied he had heard a quiet sigh. He listened for a moment, holding his breath, then with trembling hands tried to strike a light. The tiny piece of wood flamed up quite blindingly at the end of his fingers, raised above his blinking eyes. A concentrated glare fell upon the leonine white head of old Giorgio against the black fireplace, showed him leaning forward in a chair in staring immobility, surrounded, overhung, by great masses of shadow. His legs crossed, his cheek in his hand, an empty pipe in the corner of his mouth. It seemed hours before he attempted to turn his face. At the very moment the match went out, and he disappeared, overwhelmed by the shadows, as if the walls and roof of the desolate house had collapsed upon his white head in ghostly silence. Nostromo heard him stir, and uttered dispassionately the words, It may have been a vision. No, he said softly, it is no vision, old man. A strong chest voice asked in the dark, Is that you I hear, Giovan Battista? Si, viejo. Steady, not so loud. After his release by Sotillo, Giorgio Viola, attended to the very door by the good-natured engineer-in-chief, had re-entered his house, which he had been made to leave almost at the very moment of his wife's death. All was still. The lamp above was burning. He nearly called out to her by name, and the thought that no call from him would ever again evoke the answer of her voice made him drop heavily into the chair with a loud groan, wrung out by the pain, as of a keen blade piercing his breast. The rest of the night he made no sound. The darkness turned to grey, and on the colourless, clear, glassy dawn the jagged sierra stood out flat and opaque, as if cut out of paper. The enthusiastic and severe soul of Giorgio Viola, sailor, champion of oppressed humanity, enemy of kings, and, by the grace of Mrs. Gould, hotel-keeper of the Sulaco Harbour, had descended into the open abyss of desolation amongst the shattered vestiges of his past. He remembered his wooing between two campaigns, a single short week in the season of gathering olives. Nothing approached the grave passion of that time but the deep, passionate sense of his bereavement. He discovered all the extent of his dependence upon the silenced voice of that woman. It was her voice that he missed. Abstracted, busy, lost in inward contemplation, he seldom looked at his wife in those later years. The thought of his girls was a matter of concern, not of consolation. It was her voice that he would miss, and he remembered the other child, the little boy who died at sea. Ah, a man would have been something to lean upon, and, alas, even Jean-Baptiste, he of whom and of Linda, his wife had spoken to him so anxiously before she dropped off into her last sleep on earth, he on whom she had called aloud to save the children, just before she died, even he was dead. And the old man, bent forward, his head in his hand, sat through the day in immobility and solitude. He never heard the brazen roar of the bells in town. When it ceased, the earthenware filter in the corner of the kitchen kept on its swift musical drip, drip, into the great porous jar below. Toward sunset he got up and with slow movements disappeared up the narrow staircase. 
His bulk filled it, and the rubbing of his shoulders made a small noise, as of a mouse running behind the plaster of a wall. While he remained up there, the house was as dumb as a grave. Then, with the same faint rubbing noise, he descended. He had to catch at the chairs and tables to regain his seat. He seized his pipe off the high mantel of the fireplace, but made no attempt to reach the tobacco, thrust it empty into the corner of his mouth, and sat down again in the same staring pose. The son of Pedrito's entry into Sulaco, the last son of Senor Hirsch's life, the first of Decoud's solitude on the Great Isabel, passed over the albergo de Taliouna on its way to the west. The tinkling drip, drip of the filter had ceased. The lamp upstairs had burned itself out, and the night beset Giorgio Viola and his dead wife, with its obscurity and silence that seemed invincible, till the capataz de cargadores, returning from the dead, put them to flight with the splutter and flare of a match. Si, viejo, it is me. Wait. Nostromo, after barricading the door and closing the shutters carefully, groped upon a shelf for a candle, and lit it. Old Viola had risen. He followed with his eyes in the dark the sounds made by Nostromo. The light disclosed him standing without support, as if the mere presence of that man who was loyal, brave, incorruptible, who was all his son would have been, were enough for the support of his decaying strength. He extended his hand, grasping the briarwood pipe, whose bowl was charred on the edge, and knitted his bushy eyebrows heavily at the light. "'You have returned,' he said, with shaky dignity. "'Ah, very well. I—' He broke off. Nostromo, leaning back against the table, his arms folded on his breast, nodded at him slightly. You thought I was drowned. No, the best dog of the rich, of the aristocrats, of these fine men who can only talk and betray the people, is not dead yet. The Garibaldino, motionless, seemed to drink in the sound of the well-known voice. His head moved slightly once as if in sign of approval, but Nostromo saw clearly that the old man understood nothing of the words. There was no one to understand, no one he could take into the confidence of Decoud's fate, of his own, into the secret of the silver. That doctor was an enemy of the people, a tempter. Old Giorgio's heavy frame shook from head to foot with the effort to overcome his emotion at the sight of that man, who had shared the intimacies of his domestic life as though he had been a grown-up son. She believed you would return, he said solemnly. Nostromo raised his head. She was a wise woman. How could I fail to come back? He finished the thought mentally. Since she has prophesied for me an end of poverty, misery, and starvation. These words of Teresa's anger, from the circumstances in which they had been uttered, like the cry of a soul prevented from making its peace with God, stirred the obscure superstition of personal fortune, from which even the greatest genius amongst men of adventure and action is seldom free. They reigned over Nostromo's mind with the force of a potent malediction, and what a curse it was, that which her words had laid upon him. He had been orphaned so young that he could remember no other woman whom he called mother. Henceforth there would be no enterprise in which he would not fail, the spell was working already. Death itself would elude him now. He said violently, Come, viejo, get me something to eat. I am hungry. Sangre de Dios, the emptiness of my belly makes me light-headed. With his chin dropped again under his bare breast, above his folded arms, barefooted, watching from under a gloomy brow the movements of old Viola foraging amongst the cupboards, he seemed as if indeed fallen under a curse, a ruined and sinister capataz. Old Viola walked out of a dark corner, and, without a word, emptied upon the table out of his hollowed palms a few dry crusts of bread and half a raw onion, while the capataz began to devour this beggar's fare, taking up with stony-eyed voracity, piece after piece, lying by his side. The Garibaldino went off, and, squatting down in another corner, filled an earthenware mug with red wine out of a wicker-covered demijohn. With a familiar gesture, as when serving customers in the café, he had thrust his pipe between his teeth to have his hands free. 
The capataz drank greedily. A slight flush deepened the bronze of his cheek. Before him, Viola, with a turn of his white and massive head towards the staircase, took his empty pipe out of his mouth and pronounced slowly, After the shot was fired down here, which killed her as surely as if the bullet had struck her oppressed heart, she called upon you to save the children. Upon you, Jean-Baptiste. The capataz looked up. Did she do that, padrone? To save the children. There with the English senora, their rich benefactress. Hey, old man of the people, thy benefactress. I am old, muttered Giorgio Viola. An English woman was allowed to give a bed to Garibaldi, lying wounded in prison, the greatest man that ever lived. A man of the people, too, a sailor. I may let another keep a roof over my head. See, I am old. I may let her. Life lasts too long sometimes. And she herself may not have a roof over her head before many days are out, unless I... What do you say? Am I to keep a roof over her head? Am I to try and save all the Blancos together with her? You shall do it, said old Viola in a strong voice. You shall do it as my son would have. Thy son, Viejo. There never has been a man like thy son. I must try. But what if it were only a part of the curse to lure me on? And so she called upon me to save. And then... She spoke no more. The heroic follower of Garibaldi, at the thought of the eternal stillness and silence fallen upon the shrouded form stretched out on the bed upstairs, averted his face and raised his hand to his furrowed brow. She was dead before I could seize her hands, he stammered out pitifully. Before the wide eyes of the capataz, staring at the doorway of the dark staircase, floated the shape of the great Isabel, like a strange ship in distress, freighted with enormous wealth and the solitary life of a man. It was impossible for him to do anything. He could only hold his tongue, since there was no one to trust. The treasure would be lost, probably, unless Decoud, and his thought came abruptly to an end. He perceived that he could not imagine in the least what Decoud was likely to do. Old Viola had not stirred, and the motionless Capataz dropped his long soft eyelashes which gave to the upper part of his fierce black-whiskered face a touch of feminine ingenuousness. The silence had lasted for a long time. God rest her soul, he murmured gloomily. End of chapter 9, part 2